Welcome to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the latest medical literature, but now you can go out for dinner, go to the pubs, and send your kids to school? Oh, wait, no, they're still stuck at home. Never mind, your ears are still in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Amazing. We have made it to the June Roundup. This means a few things. One is that we have managed to keep the podcast on the road for six months. Congratulations, team. Um, It's been a blast so far. And thanks to our awesome listeners who have kept us going. It also means we've managed to survive COVID so far. And it's a relief to know that the virus hasn't turned the world's population into flesh-eating zombies 28 days later style. Is that a genuine concern of yours, Barney? Always, always. (laughs) Good to know. Well, folks, we have a jam-packed episode for you today with our hard-working journal spotters scouring the articles so that you can just put your feet up and you don't have to. Alongside Barney and I tonight, we have two awesome presenters. Listeners, most of you will know Alvin already, who starred in such epic episodes as the May 2020 Roundup. But new to all be the latest addition to the team, and that is Dr. Cammy Hirons, General Practitioner Extraordinaire. Cammy, do you want to introduce yourself first and then maybe tell us about any lockdown faux pas you may have had? Um, okay, sure. Yeah, my name is Dr. Cammy Hirons. I'm a GPST3 in South East London. Lockdown faux pas, I'm not too sure. Oh, I did get caught though when I went for a walk in the woods doing an emergency wee. That was pretty embarrassing. So, <laughs> <laughs> needs must though. Caught by the police or? <laughs> no, luckily not, just a passerby. But I am pregnant and so I'm pretty sure that I can pee in a policeman's hat apparently. So, I'm pretty sure peeing in the woods is fine. I've heard that. What? I've heard that. You know, I've Have heard you that. never heard that? Yeah. No. apparently it's an old law which I did try to google to check if it was actually true um that is written that pregnant women can demand to have a policeman's helmet to urinate in which I've not utilized yet and you know there's still time not yet not yet there's still some pregnancy that is amazing (laughs) (laughs) that's absolutely blowing my mind we've not even started the episode (laughs) (laughs) end it there yeah cool yeah Yeah, I think that's it lie around my drop Alvin, do you want to uh, introduce yourself to the, uh, to the audience again? Yeah, mine's going to sound quite lame now. Um, so <laughs> I am Dr. Alvin Shrestha, a geriatrics registrar in South London. So I've been uh, smashing through the lockdown bingo in the last month. I've been recently dabbling in a spot of baking for the first time in about seven years. But I haven't quite got the, the timing of my baking right. And my brownies keep coming as, out as sort of cookie type Italian biscottis. Very crunchy. Well, sound very nice, Alvin. Next month, if we actually do record face-to-face, you can bring him along. I quite like the sound of it. Um, my name, as always, is uh, Dr. Barnaby Hirons. And I think I've actually divulged quite a few of my recent faux pas on recent episodes. So, oh, actually, I, I did hear a very good story recently, somebody very close to me. Um, so it's definitely true. She was at one of the, one of the first... Um, weddings, which is on. So there was really strict rules about, you know, socially isolating and things. And she didn't know the bride very well. She knew the groom quite well. And at one point she was, you know, she turned her back and she was dealing with her kids and she t- stood up, turned around and the bride was right there. So not really thinking, she just gave her a massive cuddle. And, you know, of course, you know, the bride's jaw sort of drops and she's like, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, and the bride was like, it's okay. It's so fine. I haven't even hugged my mum today. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I have weddings allowed 
uh, not yeah, to yeah, allow not to be the lockdown brigade here but yeah no they are they weddings are up so uh, but yeah, they're all nice. very strict and have to you know only allow a certain amount of people and no hugging the bride <laughs> take home point nice. practice changing take home point for the day and um, my name's Dr. Jonathan Hudson. I'm an IMT trainee in South London. The other day I was walking in the woods and I saw a policeman and I asked him for his helmet. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> it all kind of unraveled, actually. Yeah, that's been my lockdown so far. <laughs> Just no, on a more serious note, I actually kind of am um, kind of cool with the whole like, let's not hug anymore. I think hugging was, there was too much hugging going on pre-COVID. <laughs> Let's just go back to when we were sort of awkward and British and like weren't sure whether to just wave or like, you know, shake someone's hand firmly. I thought I'm you were half French though. Do you not love, you know, the old kiss on the cheek? That's true. But I, what, I, what frustrates me is the lack of consistency. People don't know what to do. <laughs> and I'm just looking for some guidance, in fact. So. <laughs> I do. I do enjoy the British awkward. Do we kiss? Do we hug? Do we shake? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I hate to tell you this, John, but I'm actually a serial hugger. <laughs> I'm so happy we do this remotely. It's yeah. amazing. <laughs> let's, let's hope we never have to do this podcast in person again. So, awkward remote elbow bumps aside, should we, uh, should we get on with the show? Want to take the audience through um, what pearls of wisdom we're going to be covering today, John? Yes, absolutely. So, the episode is, as always, bursting full of insights to take into your day to day practice. We're going to look at new ways of monitoring heart failure as an outpatient, how the SALT test is the new blood pressure machine the undeniable relationship between our mental and physical health, and why that 98-year-old might just need intubating. That's a strange one that I'm looking forward to hearing about. Uh, <laughs> why migraines are not as benign as they might seem, the benefit of continuous glucose monitoring, and loads and loads of journal bites, tastier than Alvin's cookies. And finally, <laughs> some top tips, such as why you want a hookworm in your belly. Also looking forward <laughs> to hearing what that was all about. <laughs> Great. Thanks, John. As always, check out Costa's awesome PodPoint graphics and all the episodes at www.journalspotting.com, where you can also subscribe to our regular emails, which keep you in the loop. Oh, and find us, follow us, and try not to troll us on Twitter at Journal Spotting. John, uh, why don't you kick us off with your first journal spot? Thanks, Bonnie. I'm going to review a paper that uses a piece of kit I hope you're quite familiar with, actually. Um, so it's relatively easy to use. Uh, feels a lot more modern than using a piece of rubber piping with a drum on the end. It's everyone's favorite course to splash their study budget on. And it's that grainy screen that looks like a TV static that other doctors look at, stroke their chins and confidently say, hmm, it must be rapidly progressively interstitial fibrosis with superadded infection and mild pulmonary congestion. Oh, and the IVC is collapsing. Any guesses, guys? What is it? <laughs> You're talking about lung ultrasound, surely. Correct. Lung ultrasound is a growing part of our clinical practice, and it can be applied to all sorts of areas. One example for the use of ultrasound, as exploited by this study I'm going to talk about, is looking for pulmonary congestion by looking for beelines in the lung parenchyma. Pause and YouTube them quickly if you're not familiar with what they look like. This randomized controlled trial from a group in Mexico tested the hypothesis that lung ultrasound used at follow-up for heart failure appointments might improve outcomes. They randomized 126 patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Both groups received lung ultrasound at four pre-specified follow-up visits over a six-month period. The physicians seeing the patient at the follow-up appointments only received the results of the scans of the lung ultrasound group, not the control group. The outcome they chose was a composite of urgent heart failure visits, rehospitalization for worsening heart failure, and death. 
Okay, so they're seeing if lung ultrasound can be used to monitor for fluid overload at heart failure follow-up. So what did they find? So 47.6% in the control group reached the primary endpoint, whereas only 31.7% reached it in the lung ultrasound group, with a p-value of 0.041. So with lung ultrasound-guided treatment, there was was a 45% risk reduction in the primary endpoint. This was primarily driven by a reduction in urgent heart failure visits. There was no significant difference between the two groups on rehospitalizations or death. The median diuretic dose at week six was higher in the lung ultrasound group, 60 milligrams versus 40 milligrams in the control group. Okay, cool. So a significant RCT finding. Does this mean that I'm going to be having to use ultrasound in my GP practice? Uh, yeah, Great idea. Why not? Um, I mean, unfortunately, this study does suffer from a small sample size. The fragility index, which we discussed on the last podcast, which you can go back and listen to, was zero. It's also too hard to ignore that the clinicians seeing the patients at follow-up obviously got the reports of the ultrasound of the patients that were in the intervention group versus the control group, if that makes sense. So I wonder if there's a degree of bias in this study because the clinicians knew the patients that were in the intervention group versus the control group. So statistically, the trial is significant, albeit not by a huge amount. Lung ultrasound at follow-up does appear to reduce urgent visits for heart failure over a six-month period, but it didn't have an impact on hospitalization or death. But who knows, if you prolong the follow-up period, then maybe. But it's easy. It's a cheap intervention that can give you an extra piece of data to improve your clinical assessment. So why not wheel the machine over and Cami apply to get one in your GP practice? (laughs) I'll see what I can do. Cool. I'll I'll jump in now, I guess. I've I've got a couple of linked articles to discuss with you today. These are both from JAMA Psychiatry this June. JAMA Psychiatry? I didn't know we were subscribing to that one, Barney. Pretty certain this is a medical podcast, but go on. It is. It is a medical podcast, John. Thanks for reminding me. But these articles are really key to medics as they what they do is explore the undeniable and incredibly important link between our mental and physical health. You got me intrigued. What articles are you going to talk us through? Right. I think I'll start with the one on cardiovascular disease. So the article is Association of Symptoms of Depression with Cardiovascular Disease and Mortality in Low, Middle and High Income Countries. Previous studies have revealed that in high income countries, depression is associated with cardiovascular disease. This study aimed to explore this and find out if it was the same in all countries, regardless of income. This cohort study used data from the Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology Pure study group, which is put mildly, a huge undertaking. 21 countries were involved, which were labelled as low, middle or high income. Just shy of 146,000 participants were followed up every three years for about 10 years with questionnaires and medical outcomes. Primary and secondary outcomes were incidents of major cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality and a combination of the two. Loads of interesting things have come out of this. Let's start with a few fun facts. That's Barney's idea of Fun facts. The overall rate of significant depressive symptoms was 11%. The rate was 15% in higher income countries. Ah, so money doesn't buy you happiness. Indeed, absolutely. The lowest rate was in China at 2% and highest in occupied Palestine at 40%. It is important to know that people with depressive symptoms were also more likely to drink, smoke, eat less healthily, be socially isolated, and interestingly, mistrust others. Yep. But what about the primary outcomes, Varney? Yeah. So if you have four or more depressive symptoms, which was their cutoff, the hazard ratio for developing cardiovascular disease was 1.14, with an all-cause mortality of 1.17 and combined hazard ratio of 1.18. So just to 
recap that. So that's 14% more likely to develop cardiovascular disease, 17% more likely to die, and 18% more likely to have either. Absolutely, Alvin, you've been paying attention. An increase in the number of depressive symptoms increased the risk of the combined outcome almost linearly. So if you had four symptoms, your hazard ratio is 1.14, but it goes up to 1.17 if you have seven symptoms. Right, so there's like a higher risk of badness if you're depressed, and this risk goes up the more depressed you are. Sounds pretty intuitive. And did they find a difference in low or high outcome countries apart from the different rates of depression? These hazard ratios were similar across the globe, no matter what the level of income. In each country, there were further points to note. Males were less likely to have or admit to depressive symptoms. And if they did have them, they had worse outcomes. Equally, the relative risks of death and the cardiovascular disease were more than twice as high in urban compared to rural areas. The increased risk in urban areas can only partly be explained by an increase in traditional risk factors such as smoking, but I'm sure there's plenty of potential confounders which, we can, which cannot really be accounted for here. The authors also comment that the association between depression and death and cardiovascular disease is similar to that of smoking, obesity, and unhealthy eating. Okay, Barney, but you've mentioned a couple of issues here. This is an observational study, and we know that correlation does not equal causation. Very true, Alvin, but, but this is a robust prospective cohort study with results that marry up to previous literature. I certainly believe that the, this provides strong supporting evidence that depression is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and death. But as you said, with this data, we can't be certain. Equally, Based on this study, we do not have the evidence yet to know that treating depressive symptoms actually reduces the risk. Although, of course, this is theoretically plausible. And my next study touches a bit on this. Well, what about the possibility that cardiovascular disease itself causes depression? Well, they did note that and they found no evidence of reverse causation. But yes, of, of course, it's feasible. Okay, great. So what do we reckon, guys? Is depression going to go into our 10-year cardiovascular risk calculators? What is it that we use here nowadays? Is it Q-Risk? I, I am going to swiftly palm that question off to our GP co-host, Cami. Oh, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is Q-Risk. But if we're going to be picky, it's Q-Risk 3 at the moment. Oh, very mm. good. All right. This data strengthens the argument for depression to be put on there. And this study provides yet more evidence that we should be addressing and treating depression aggressively, not just for the mental health of the patient, but for their physical health too. So... Cardiovascular problems and their link with mental health seem quite intuitive. But what about our immune system? There is a growing body of evidence that our mental health and our immunity are inextricably linked. And my next article, which is Psychosocial Interventions and Immune System Function, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Clinical Trials, looks at just this. So this concept isn't as out there as you might think. There has been a wealth of research in this area, which has shown that immune system processes are influenced by social, neurocognitive, and behavioral factors. I love the work by David Williams, which showed everyday discrimination is an independent predictor of mortality. You can hear more from him on a really good BMJ podcast. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. There is already evidence that chronic stress can suppress both cellular and humoral immunity, as well as cause nonspecific inflammation and that factors such as good resilience and social support helps counteract these harmful effects. Hmm, this is interesting, Barney. Can I just suggest a randomized control trial? Three arms, headspace in one arm, yoga in the other, control, outcomes of rheumatoid arthritis. <laughs> is that what they it. did? Mate, I love it. That, that's it. You, you got it. No, that, hey, definitely the next one. So, uh, well, 
Out of a few thousand articles, 56 were included in the analysis. They investigated how eight different psychological interventions for a wide variety of indications affected immune function, mostly serological markers, which can be either positive or negative. Psychological interventions, which were most successful at improving immune function, were cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and mixed modality interventions. Improved immune factors that were most consistently seen were decreased levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines or markers, such as interleukin-6 and C-reactive protein, and increased immune cell counts, such as CD56 and CD4. In figures, they found that if you were randomly assigned to CBT compared to a control group, you would have a statistically significant 15% improvement in beneficial immune function and a 34% reduction in harmful immune system function. Also, they found that after intervention, these findings lasted about six months. This is really interesting, Barney. I think maybe you're going to touch on some of the issues around the studies. I'm sure it's not sort of crystal clear, but I really like the idea that we might be sort of prescribing methotrexate scripts alongside maybe like headspace subscriptions in the future. Is that where we're going? It's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a bit of a paradigm shift for medics, I feel. But this is a fairly robust meta-analysis, which matches a number of studies in this area. It doesn't give us much information on what the changes in immune markers actually mean. It would be nice to know if these patients had less infections, for instance, or improved inflammatory conditions like arthritis. But these would probably require a lot longer term studies. However, it seems fairly clear that interventions such as CBT can make physiological improvements. And when looking at the bigger picture, there are less side effects. It is cheaper than a lot of immune related drugs. And hey, if it also improves people's mental health, well, that's just marvellous. So CBT for everyone then? Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So there we go. A month to reflect on the interesting and involving crossover between mental well-being and physical health. Alvin, I think you're about to take us back to a place where physicians feel a little bit more familiar. Thanks, Barney. That's right. So along the similar note of cardiovascular risk factors that you were talking about earlier, I'm now going to be talking about hypertension and specifically how perhaps our practice of managing difficult hypertension should change. I'm sure we've all faced this scenario. So you're about to start your ward round and the nurse grabs you, telling you that Mr. Neil Fedepine in bed four has a very high blood pressure that's been over 170 since arriving on the ward, but he's about to go home. So you look at his drug chart and he's already on, I don't know, amlodipine, an ACE inhibitor and a thiazide. What are you going to do? Oh yeah, it's difficult. I mean, basically you think about either adding in another agent or i don't know having a look at the doses and upping the doses but i don't know i know as geriatricians we're probably going to want to complain about the polypharmacy discharge summary gp to follow up blood pressure yeah cammy happy with that yeah that one yeah that's great perfect you guys are experts (laughs) what would you do cammy send them back yeah further them back (laughs) hypertensive emergency Um, yeah, we'd probably all be tempted to add in another one. But would anyone test for a secondary cause? Um, potentially, if there were young patients, I guess. Yeah, if you're, if, mm. yeah, if you're concerned. Yeah, interesting. Well, hopefully after uh, we go through this paper, you'll have a better idea. The unrecognized prevalence of primary aldosteronism, which I think puts into question actually just how rare primary aldosteronism is and possible diagnostic pitfalls that we might encounter. Okay, primary aldosteronism, that's, uh, that is Con syndrome, isn't it? Where you're yeah, basically you're producing too much aldosterone. Am I right? Just make yeah, that- that's right. Yeah, <laughs> good, fine. <laughs> Part-time endocrinologist. Yeah, so we're, 
We're looking at uh, situations, for example, there might be an adrenal tumor producing aldosterone autonomously, which are then sort of suppress the renin level, and that makes it primary aldosteronism. So looking at the paper itself, they had patients from five different sites in America, uh, and they all had varying, varying blood pressure measurements from normal blood pressure to grade one and grade two hypertension and even resistant hypertension. They took various clever biochemical samples from all these patients and all of them received an oral sodium load. And then they went on to exclude patients who failed to achieve an adequate sodium load defined by a high urinary sodium excretion. This then left us with just over a thousand patients for the results. Sorry, Alvin. Sodium testing. Again, that rings a bell. But what does that involve again? Yeah, so more clever endocrine stuff. So the definitive test for primary aldosteronism is by detecting a, a high urinary aldosterone level despite having a high sodium load. Giving someone a high sodium load orally should suppress their renin levels and reduce their sort of RAS pathway activation, leading ultimately to a reduced level of aldosterone. But if the urine aldosterone remains high despite this, then that confirms primary aldosteronism. So moving on to the results, which I think were pretty clear. In their own words, the paper states that there was a continuum of renin-independent aldosterone production that was observed to parallel the severity of hypertension. So what they're describing is, as the level of hypertension increases, so did the prevalence of primary aldosteronism. So to put this into numbers, the prevalence was 11% in normotensive patients, which rose in a sort of stepwise fashion through stage one and stage two hypertension and rising up to 22% in resistant hypertension. The paper also goes on to say that this prevalence was actually higher than what it would have been had they used the traditional serum aldosterone renin ratio that we're often taught about in medical school um, as a sort of first line screening test that is, I think, still done in practice. So this also highlights the lack of sensitivity for this uh, aldosterone-renin ratio. Oh, great. Thanks, Alvin. Yeah, there's a lot of information there. Um, do you think you could yeah, summarize you know, what you've learned from this and how it might change your practice? So firstly, primary aldosteronism is a lot more common than we think. I think our threshold for testing should probably be lower. And I wouldn't necessarily wait until you know, they're on four or five antihypertensives to test for it either. Secondly, that aldosterone-renin ratio that we learned about in med school doesn't seem to be particularly sensitive. Just because that comes back negative, I wouldn't necessarily be put off from pursuing the diagnosis. Thanks, Alvin. That's such a good paper. Thanks for uh, presenting that. And if anyone wants a bit of a deeper dive, uh, NEFJC, who do quite in-depth deep dives on the nephrology papers, have done quite a bit on that. So uh, head over there. Cami, what, uh, what have you spotted for us this month? Yeah, thank you. I found two interesting studies and I'm going to pair them up. Um, one of them is looking at the risk of migraine with aura on cardiovascular disease. And then the other one is looking at risk of migraine during pregnancy and maternal stroke. Very interesting. Let's do it. So I'll start with um, the paper published in JAMA of June 2020, which is the association of migraine with aura and other risk factors with incident cardiovascular disease in women. So listeners may or may not already be aware that migraine, especially migraine with aura, has been associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Essentially, we don't really know why, but there are some theories for this, and I include impairment of endovascular function, genetic predisposition to both migraine and cardiovascular disease, and possibly inflammatory processes. 
So it was thought that the risk from migraines was smaller than other traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as hypertension and smoking and things. Um, And the authors from this study decided to investigate that exactly, so specifically in women. So this was a large cohort study, and it looked at almost 28,000 female health professionals in the U.S. And it compared adjusted incidence of major cardiovascular events, so that included MI, stroke, or a cardiovascular disease-related death, uh, in women who were over 45. And those women either had migraine with aura, migraine without aura, and there were women that had no migraine, and that counted as no migraine for the past 12 months. At baseline, the women had normal lipid profiles and no cardiovascular disease, and they were followed up for around 22 years. Wow, so that's quite an impressive cohort. What did they find? Was it a case of don't worry about the migraine and just give them a trip tan in a dark room and hope for the best? Basically, the results show that women with migraine with aura had higher adjusted incidence rates of cardiovascular disease compared with women with migraine without aura or no migraine at all. So adjusted incidence rates of major cardiovascular disease per thousand person years were statistically higher for women with migraine with aura. And that was at 3.36 versus 2.11 for all the other women. Now that matches up quite well with what we already knew from the literature. However, what was really interesting is that women with migraine with aura had a higher incidence of cardiovascular disease event than obese women, than women with high triglycerides, and those with low HDL. There was no statistically significant difference with women who have high systolic blood pressure, high cholesterol, or a family history of MI, and also higher incidence rates were found amongst women that had diabetes or who currently smoked. Wow. So just to check then, you're saying migraine was a bigger risk factor than obesity, high triglycerides, and low HDL levels, but was the same as hypertension, high cholesterol, and family history but not quite as big a risk factor as diabetes or smoking. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's right. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Um, Not too surprisingly, rates of cardiovascular disease further increased if the woman with migraine with aura also had obesity, and even more so if they had diabetes. And uh, did they offer any mechanism for this risk factor? Well, only really what I've mentioned before, um, essentially the precise mechanisms linking migraine with aura to cardiovascular disease incidence is still not well understood. We also don't have any idea from this study if treatment for the migraines was associated with worse or even better outcomes. So there's still plenty of questions which need answering. And overall, the clinical importance of these findings and whether they're generalizable beyond this study population clearly needs further work. Yeah. And so what can we take home from this, Cami? Because, you know, as migraines are chronic and not really curable, does this mean that we can't reduce their risk for cardiovascular disease? For me, the key take home message is to actually ask women about if they have migraine with aura when thinking about cardiovascular disease risk and then trying to reduce their other risk factors such as hypertension, obesity and smoking because it's of even more importance. This study is blowing my mind. Is that really the case? As high risk factor as obesity for cardiovascular disease in women? According to the study, yeah, I thought it was really shocking as well. So, yeah, we all need to ask more about migraine with aura. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like another tick box for the Q-Risk 3 score then. Well, actually, it is already on there. Ah. (laughs) Oh, is it? Oh, fine. I thought we were breaking a huge story here. Is that on the Q-Risk 3? Okay, moving swiftly on, what what have you got next for us, Cammy? 
Sure. Well, um, the next paper takes me on to a retrospective Californian study published in JAMA Neurology in June 2020, migraines during pregnancy and the risk for maternal stroke. So strokes in pregnancy are rare, but can be utterly disastrous. As doctors, we clearly should be mindful about who's at risk, and we need to focus on identifying modifiable intervention targets. So it's known that migraines are associated with an increased risk of stroke in pregnancy, but it's not clear if this is just because it can be associated with hypertension. So with a huge sample size of almost 3 million women, the authors of this study aim to determine the extent to which hypertensive disorders play a part in the association between migraines and maternal stroke. Whoa, so Cami, you're bringing out the big guns here. Three million. <laughs> well, it's my first podcast, I had to impress. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagining some poor, you know, medical student or F1 going through all those notes. You mean trying to fulfill their quip quota before ALCP? <laughs> We've all been there. My favourite, sorry guys, bit of digression. My favourite was going through hundreds of notes when I was in Zanzibar on my elective, basically to find out that the most common documented cause of admission was coconuts falling on people's heads. I then handed over my award-winning data to my senior who was you know, in charge of it, never followed up and never heard about it again. It's probably probably made it big in some big journal, but hey. Given the publishing standards have dropped so much with COVID, I think you might be in with a shout. I should have. I should have. You're absolutely right. I'll find the data. Yeah. I'll go back. Don't worry. <laughs> well, anyway, back to the study. As you might imagine, this study highlighted some interesting facts. So women with migraines are more likely to be Caucasian, have private insurance, obese, have diabetes, whether that was pre-existing or gestational, have a mental health disorder, smoke and use drugs or alcohol. And then the main findings of the study were firstly, women with migraines were more likely to have a hypertensive disorder, a stroke during pregnancy and delivery or a stroke postpartum. Whilst the numbers were small compared to women without migraines, women with migraines had an adjusted risk ratio of 1.6 for hypertensive disorder, 6.8 for a stroke during delivery or postpartum, and 2.1 for a stroke postpartum. Sorry, Cami, can you just go through the adjusted risk ratio, what that means? Sure, yeah. This approximates the relative risk when the incidence of a disease is rare. So, for example, the risk of stroke in pregnancy or delivery was 0.15%. Okay, so the relative risk of stroke in pregnancy or delivery was 6.8 times those who don't have migraines. That sounds quite big. Yeah, it is. Um, also to note, the strength of these findings were twice as strong for ischemic stroke um, compared to hemorrhagic. So in conclusion, similar to previous work in this area, both pregnant and non-pregnant women had an elevated risk of stroke if they suffered with migraines. Approximately one quarter of the excess cases of maternal stroke associated with migraine were attributable to hypertensive disorders. And that kind of suggests that other pathways exist between migraine and stroke during the perinatal period. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So treating just the hypertension won't completely resolve the risk. Good to be aware of. I suppose one question that it does raise is whether treating the migraines is going to have an impact. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thanks, Cami and Alvin. Um, John, tell us about what interesting things you found. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about how hard it was to be a teenager. Barney, it was a long time ago. Remember what that felt like? Longer, longer for some, John. Thanks. Yeah. 
Especially if you were you a bald teenager as well. That must have been tough. <laughs> I used to go to the hairdresser and ask for them to thin it, and I regret it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could tell the younger me, don't thin it. Have it thick. Anyways, some of us remember that scary time of personal, social, financial, and at times what felt like existential turmoil. Imagine trying to manage your type 1 diabetes on top of all of that. And it comes as no surprise that diabetes care in this age group is challenging. However, there is one technology, continuous glucose monitoring, which is revolutionizing diabetes care and may have a huge impact on this age group. These nifty devices you may have seen on your patients with type 1 diabetes, small discs, often on the back of the arm, that are continuously monitoring the glucose level in the interstitial fluid and then relaying that information to an external device that collects all the data. The benefit for patients of these continuous glucose monitors seems pretty clear. You get real-time blood sugar monitoring with alerts for trends in blood glucose, and hopefully it reduces the need for finger stick testing. This RCT, published in JAMA this month, looked at whether continuous glucose monitoring in young adults and adolescents, where data on this really is lacking, whether this improved glycemic control. Kind of seems intuitive that it should improve outcomes, but what did they find? Yeah, I agree. It definitely seems intuitive, but these systems are quite expensive. And I think before they can be fully rolled out, I think um, the data is helpful. And I think we've got some data here. So the headline answer is that CGM, continuous glucose monitoring, does appear to have a small but statistically significant effect on lowering HbA1c over a 26-week period of use. To prove this, the investigators randomized 153 14 to 24-year-olds across 14 endocrinology sites to receive either CGM or BGM for 26 weeks, BGM being the more traditional finger stick testing. Two-thirds of the study group were aged 14 to 19 and one-third 19 to 25. Both groups had a mean HbA1c at baseline of 8.9. In the BGM group, this didn't budge. And in the CGM group, this dropped to 8.5% at 26 weeks, a group difference which was significant. This improvement reached significance at week 13 and occurred despite incomplete adherence to the continuous glucose monitoring system, with roughly 70% of the study participants using it at least five days a week. This suggests there could have been even greater effects on the HbA1c if adherence was improved. Importantly, regarding patient satisfaction, there was increased satisfaction with glucose testing in the CGM group, which I don't know, you might expect if people are volunteering for the study, I'm not sure, but Regarding adverse events, no real difference between the two groups in incidence of hypoglycemia or ketoacidosis was noted. So what's good about the study? Well, it's evidence that this method of blood sugar monitoring has a significant impact on glycemic control in the 26-week period. And it is worth mentioning the diversity of the patient population, with more than one-third of the participants of racial and ethnic minorities and over 40% of the cohort receiving public health insurance. That's an important detail given the expense of these devices. A device is between £500 and £1,000, and the sensors, which are replaced once a week, can be roughly £60 a pop. I do recommend going on YouTube and checking out all the different videos of young diabetics sort of talking about these devices. It's really fascinating and talking about how they integrate them in their, their lifestyles. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is there anything that you think um, is lacking in this study, John? Well, I, I think a longer duration would clearly be helpful, and hopefully in the future we might have the data and obviously, we're using HbA1c as a surrogate marker, and we're not really looking at clinical outcomes. So, you know, there is always that problem. Um, the CGM usage was still low. Uh, as I said, there was an adherence problem. And I think that suggests that there are still challenges in managing 
diabetes in adolescents and young adults that are independent of just getting a new device and, and using it. So this study definitely highlighted to me the benefits to patients in this age group of CGM. We've all seen patients of this age presenting many times on the medical take in DKA, often due to poor adherence to insulin regimes, and anything such as CGM that can improve outcomes for them is worth talking about. And I think it's important to highlight that CGM is available on the NHS for patients with type 1 diabetes with fairly broad criteria, including any patient requiring greater than eight BM checks in a day, along with a host of other specific patient groups and I just want to nod here to the NHS long-term plan and kind of hats off to them for committing to the funding of that as of April 2019 I think it's really really good I think it's great and I think you know as you say about patient satisfaction and things like that um, it's definitely be intuitively it seems like a better tolerated thing and it gives people more control so that's got to be a good thing so let's go from one age of one end of the age spectrum all the way to the other one Alvin what are you going to tell us about 90 year olds That's right, Barney. Thanks. So I wouldn't be a geriatrician without mentioning how our population is aging, at least, you know, in one podcast. So here it is. Our population is aging. (laughs) And uh, as cliche as it is, it is true. And we often talk about this in the context, you know, a lot of patients sort of getting older, developing frailty. But at the same time, there are actually a lot of other patients who are very well, robust, out there living well and, and in good health. Now, when these patients come in through the front door and they develop a severe illness, that can pose us interesting questions about whether escalation of treatment into an ICU is appropriate or not. So the paper I'm going to be talking about is outcomes of intensive care patients older than 90 years, an 11-year national observational study. It's a retrospective cohort study done in the Netherlands of all ICU admissions above the age of 80 in an 11-year period. What they did was they compared the outcomes in two age categories. So one group was the 80 to 90 year old category against an older 90 year and above category. They had over 100,000 patients of which 9% were above the age of 90. Alvin, this is a really interesting subject. Obviously, as you get older, your risk of dying goes up. Um, I know if you reach 90, your average life expectancy, is it four years? which is I think that's about right yeah yeah it's pretty similar to a whole bunch of of nasty illnesses and diseases like cancer and um, so is this study going to change how we think about it well this is the interesting question and um uh, I'll go on to the results now and I'll see you know what you guys think of it so the headline primary outcome was that in the older above 90 year old group this group actually had a lower ICU mortality at 14% than the 80 to 90 year old group, with both groups having a similar hospital mortality at 26%. So almost three quarters were successfully discharged from hospital. That actually sounds pretty good. And what happened after they left hospital? Were there any longer term outcomes? Yeah, they also divulged uh, those longer term outcomes, as you ask. So Mortality was higher for the older group um, at 43%, um, and this was at three months, which then rose to 55% mortality at one year. So 55% mortality, I mean, it's a bit of a, a tricky number to interpret. And I guess it depends on if you're a, you know, a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person. So bear in mind that this is a sort of total mortality. So if you take away that 26% hospital mortality, you're, lift, you're left with about 29% of hospital survivors who go on to die at one year. From the way I've described that, I guess I'm a glass half full 
kind of person on this one. <laughs> sure. Um, you mentioned it's a cohort study. Did it have the expected flaws? Yeah. So, I mean, the main one was, you know, there was no matching between the two age groups and they had a table showing the patient characteristics, which actually suggested that the older groups, so the above 90-year-olds, were probably a little bit less sick than the younger group, which might obviously explain the slightly better short-term outcomes. Yeah, that definitely fits with my ITU experience. The patients over the age of 90 are are very, are probably slightly more carefully selected and probably are admitted for a quote unquote simpler problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be one of the confounding variables that makes it a bit trickier to, to decipher. So what do you take away from this study, Alvin? So I think firstly, 90 year olds and above had uh, an ICU mortality of 14%, which I did a bit of digging and this is incredibly the same as the UK's national average. Um, and that's the national average. So, you know, the mean age group for that will be, you know, somewhere in the 60s. And I'm being, I'm being a bit naughty here and obviously cross country really. So Netherlands versus the UK probably shouldn't be doing that. And I also mentioned that they had a hospital mortality of 26%. Um, and this is, however, slightly higher than the UK's average of 19%. See, but it doesn't sound far off. No, it isn't. And as I said, whilst, you know, we've got to be cautious in extrapolating this data from the Dutch to the UK, I do think it convincingly shows that age alone should not be a barrier for ICU admission. And even at this extreme age, provided that the patient is physiologically robust with few comorbidities, there's no reason why we shouldn't be referring them on. Thanks, Alvin. That was really interesting, especially as I'm trying to do all my advanced care plans for my patients right now. It's definitely some food. I think there's another reading of that, which is, you know, ICUs are good at patient selection and know who's going to do well. Yeah, yeah, but definitely, I think it's, it's, it's could be again. It's, there's a few possible confounders, and that's probably mm. is a big one, isn't it? Yeah, either that, or if you get to the age of ninety, you've done really well. You probably haven't got any horrible comorbidity disease. So actually, yeah. by the time you get to ninety, you're probably okay. <laughs> yeah, strong genes, maybe. Right, brilliant, guys. Thank you so much for going through all those, um, you know, articles. Audience, we are going to move on to our tasty journal bites. Right. So thanks very much for that. And uh, we can all put down our crunchy burnt brownies that Alvin's kindly sent to us. And uh, we're now going to serve up some tasty journal bites. I like them, Alvin. Don't worry. I'm going to (laughs) smother them in peanut butter and then uh, it'll be delicious. Yeah. None for you, John. None for you. (laughs) Uh, You're up first, Barney. Perfect. Okay. Fire away. So I'm going to look at Efficacy of ketamine for initial control of acute agitation in the emergency department. A randomized study published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. I love this study. Frequently in the emergency department and occasional in ward medical patients, we need to use what our American colleagues call takedown medications. But what is best? It's a prospective single center open label study of 98 patients. They either received a combination of between 5 and 10 milligrams of haloperidol with one to two milligrams of lorazepam combined IM or IV, or they had ketamine at four milligrams per kilogram IM or one milligram per kilogram IV. Significantly more patients who received ketamine were sedated within five minutes. That's 22% compared to 0%, with a medium time to sedation with ketamine of 15 minutes versus 36 minutes with the haloperidol lorazepam group. 
there was a higher rate of transient tachycardia and hypertension in the ketamine group with no other significant adverse outcomes. So ketamine is known to have fewer side effects such as respiratory depression, cardiovascular compromise, or prolonged QTC. Should we be using it for racket tranquilization in the UK? I think the issue is that in the UK, we aren't too used to using ketamine as an agent, but I think we should strongly consider it for its clear benefits. Thanks for that, Barney. I have got a journal bite for you. Uh, Discrimination and hypertension risk among African-Americans in the Jackson Heart Study, which was published in Hypertension. Whilst it's known that African-Americans have a higher rate of hypertension, it's not clear why. Could this be related to discrimination, as is is described in some literature? The authors used data from the Jackson Heart Study, which followed up participants between the year 2000 and 2013. They found 1,845 African-Americans who described discrimination, of which 52% developed hypertension. After adjusting for the usual confounders, high versus low levels of lifetime discrimination is associated with incident hypertension with a hazard ratio of 1.34. The article does raise some questions, though, such as why having a medium level of lifetime discrimination led to hypertension more than high levels, and why everyday discrimination doesn't seem to affect hypertension rates. However, it all lends itself to the growing body of evidence that discrimination is an independent risk factor for badness, especially cardiovascular disease. Cool. Thanks, Cammy. Um, I'm going to go with outcomes associated with a Pixaban versus warfarin in patients with renal dysfunction in blood advances. I'm sorry to mention them again, but I've got another trial about DOAX. You just love DOAX, John. Mate, I know. I don't, it's not that I love DOAX, it's that I hate doing an INR. <laughs> Although you can use a Pixaban in patients with renal impairment, it should probably be a go-to, we still don't have good clinical data on the safety and effectiveness of DOACs in patients with severe renal dysfunction, although we are seeing increasing usage. Warfarin is still very much the go-to. I think this is slowly changing, though. This study is a retrospective cohort study of 861 patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 25 on either a Pixaban or Warfarin. They compared the rate of thrombosis and the rate of bleeding in those on a Pixaban versus those on warfarin. Over a six-month period, patients that were on a Pixaban appeared to have lower rates of thrombosis and lower rates of bleeding, with the adjusted hazard ratio for both being 0.47 when adjusted for history of AF and previous coronary artery bypass grafting. So, another piece of evidence that DOACs are coming to a patient with end-stage kidney disease near you. Thanks, John. And I've clearly caught your DOAC fever because next I've got risk of hospitalization with hemorrhage among older adults taking clarithromycin versus azithromycin and direct oral anticoagulants from JAMA Internal Medicine. So this paper hammers home a very important prescribing point that I think is worth making. And the equation goes a little something like this. Clarithromycin, commonly prescribed antibiotic in the elderly, plus DOAC, increasingly prescribed, and whose levels are increased by clarithromycin, equals increased risk of hemorrhage. This Canadian study looked at almost 25,000 patients on a DOAC and compared co-prescribing of clarithromycin versus azithromycin. They found that Clary was associated with a 1.71-fold higher rate of hospitalization within 30 days for major hemorrhage. It's a retrospective cohort study, and the effect size is a little small, but it should ring some alarm bells, particularly when you obviously see a DOAC combined with clarithromycin on the drug chart. Now, it might be a little bit late in the episode to mention enzyme pathways, 
but the CYP3A4 is affected and is the point of interaction for increasing the level of DOAX. Feel free to drop the mic after you say that on your next post-take ward round. Brilliant, Alvin. Well said. Thank you. Finally, I've got treatments for headache in the emergency departments. Haloperidol in the acute setting. This is the VHA study. Haha, ha, I don't really get it. A randomized clinical trial published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Headaches are a real um, headache for emergency departments and acute medic. The usual treatment for benign headache includes NSAIDs, sometimes opioids, and antiemetics, which often have both limited effect and side effects. Haloperidol has an affinity for dopamine receptors and has shown to be beneficial in some headaches. But does it actually work? This blinded randomized controlled trial of 118 people compared 2.5 milligrams IV haloperidol to placebo in patients with acute headache with no red flags and a QTC of less than 450. At 60 minutes, the haloperidol group had a reduction in their visual analog pain score of 4.7 compared to 1.9 in the control. Treatment with rescue NSAID was needed in 78% of the control group and 31% of the haloperidol group. Side effects were minor, and there was no QTC prolongation in this study. Reminder that this was a comparison against placebo, not other drugs. But haloperidol at 2.5 milligrams IV looks both safe and effective for severe headache and might help reduce the amount of NSAIDs and opioids that we use. Well, that is interesting. I have got one last general bite for you, which I couldn't help myself. It is a primary care a related one. So this is primary care led weight management for remission of type 2 diabetes, the direct study, which was an open label cluster randomized trial published in The Lancet. So I'm pretty sure it doesn't need repeating, but type 2 diabetes is an ever-increasing, hugely significant health issue, and any intervention which can help prevent or cure it are surely needed. So this open-label cluster randomized trial split 306 overweight patients with type 2 diabetes who were not already on insulin into the control group and the intervention group, in which they stopped diabetic medication and commenced an intensive weight loss plan with structured support for long-term weight loss. So the headliner here is that 46% of the intervention group achieved remission of their diabetes compared to 4% of the control group. The mean weight loss was 10 kilograms compared to just one kilogram in the control. And just as importantly, quality of life was increased by 7.2 points compared to 2.9 point decrease in the control. So what to take home from this? Type 2 diabetes can go into remission with significant weight loss and sustained weight loss can be achieved without major operations or medications. And this has to be what we should be aiming for in these patients in my perspective. Nice, Cammy. That's great. I'm just going to reference the former deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson, I believe, was uh, someone who might have followed this intervention. I look him up. Honestly, he uh, lost loads of weight and manages type diabetes incredibly well. He's a bit of a poster boy. Very good. Very good. I didn't know that. Is that the poster you have in the background? It's quite dark yeah. on your image yeah. there, John. I can't quite see. I mean, <laughs> it's, him and, it's him and all the other deputy Labour leaders in the background. Oh, lovely. Um, great. Perfect. So... We're getting to that time. Has anyone got any interesting but totally irrelevant, relatively relevant articles to share? My hand is up, John. Um, anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Me, 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 look at me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Barney, here we go. Great. Take okay. it away. I'm going to start with a quick question to the team. If you had to have a parasite, what would you choose? Oh, that's hard. 
I'd probably go lymphatic filariasis right now. I've got pretty bad pregnancy-induced uh, swollen ankles, so you may as well add some lymphedema in. Plus, <laughs> there is no chance of me having swollen testicles, so I'm up for it. <laughs> Very good. It's good and, to know. Unless you're having a boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're safe. Anybody else? Nick? I'm going to go with tapeworm because I'm pretty convinced I've got one already as I'm constantly hungry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm pretty fond of my tapeworm. Yeah, You, you want to get some in. more to join the party, do you? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with schistosomiasis hematobium because uh, it would mean I was in Lake Malawi, which seems uh, pretty dreamy right now. Yeah, yeah that nice. would be nice, mm. very nice. Okay, I've actually uh, discussed this with a few of my ID colleagues who they kind of, when you, do, when you broach this with them, they roll their eyes as this is apparently quite a frequent conversation in their fun ID world. Their answer was Giardia. Not too many symptoms, no long-term complications, and will help keep your weight down. The pros and cons of helmet infections have been discussed for years, but rarely do people talk about the benefits of hookworms. These pesky, alien-like parasites penetrate your skin, migrate, and hook onto the inside of your bowel before sucking your blood, causing anemia and other nastiness. The body produces antibodies to these, and it has been theorized that they may protect against MS. Therefore, may I proudly present hookworm treatment for relapsing multiple sclerosis, a randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial published in JAMA. The Hiron's household is literally only getting JAMA papers through the door. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I think we're going to have some peanut butter and JAMA sandwiches later. (laughs) How long do you have to be on the podcast till you get all the bad jokes? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're right. It does seem so. I think we've, we've really covered JAMA. Right. This study gathered 70 odd patients with MS, not on any immunoregulatory treatments. They gave half a subcutaneous injection of hookworm and the other half placebo. These were followed up with frequent MRIs and immunological blood tests. Are you serious? Okay. Tell us it was successful. Well, it depends on how you define success, John. Some say it's a trying that counts, not the end result. I think your parents told you that a lot, didn't they, Barney? <laughs> yes, they did actually. Thanks. Yeah. In the treatment group, there was both less disease activity on MRI and fewer relapses. However, this was a non-significant trend. There was, however, a significant increase in blood T regulatory cell counts. I'm pretty pleased that wasn't significant because this episode would be too much otherwise. I've had my mind blown too many times. <laughs> Police helmets, migraines, and now giving MS patients hookworm, I, it would be too much. Sorry, Barney, I got us distracted. You were telling us about regulatory cell counts. Is It's a good thing that they go up? Yeah, yeah apparently so. Yeah, I, based on your previous studies, maybe there should have been a third arm that got CBT as well as hookworm. Surely that's going to be the next study I'll present from JAMA. Yeah, that and the um, coconuts on the head, which will definitely be on the front page. So many options, so many options. (laughs) Well, there we go, guys. I've certainly had a belter of an episode. It's been great. And I think before we leave, we're just going to run through our top take-home points uh, from what we'd covered in a sort of one-liner. So I'm just going to start. I am going to wheel over the ultrasound to assess pulmonary congestion, heart failure. I think we all need to be aware that depression and mental illness have a massive effect on our physical health, especially cardiovascular risk and our immune function. Primary aldosteronism is a lot more common than we think. Women that have migraine with aura are at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, so ask about it. Women who have migraines are at higher risk of stroke. 
continuous glucose monitoring has is and continues to revolutionize outpatient diabetic care. So bring it up with patients. And finally, outcomes for 90-year-olds in the ICU are not bad, so refer on. <laughs> refer all your 95 Refer them all. Refer <laughs> on. <laughs> Don't worry about the comorbidities, just get, just get them out there. Brilliant. Ah, lovely, guys. Well, look, that's fantastic. You've all, oh, yeah, everyone's done a lot of work on that. That's brilliant. I think we've got loads of useful take-home points for everybody. Thanks, Cammy, for your first, first podcast session. How's it been for you? Um, very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is an association between improved pregnancy outcomes and podcasting as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah it must be. Yeah. It's in Jammer. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you guys. Have a lovely evening. Have a lovely yeah, evening. Bye bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman and animations expert Costa. Check out our website for his awesome pop points. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any feedback or questions, then get in touch. Journalspotting at gmail.com. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.